and welcome to Breaking Out of Breaking In, a practical filmmaking podcast about taking your creative career into your own hands and making great work that gets seen without playing the Hollywood game. Or at least while changing the rules. Hi, I'm Brie Castellini, your other co-host, and today we are breaking down just the two of us, the craft of found footage filmmaking. But before we dive in, remember that we release bonus content for each episode that we do of this podcast over on patreon.com slash breakingoutpod, which you can join if you want to support us and get yourself even more info and resources. So Christina, do you remember why we decided to talk about found footage? I do remember. We couldn't decide on what our next solo episode should be. Nobody suggested anything. (laughs) I know. You guys guys really need to chime in. I know you all have opinions. Yes. And this was one that you suggested because you had a lot to say on it. And I was kind of like, I'm curious. I have opinions as a viewer, but I've never done it. So I wouldn't it wouldn't be very like instructional for on my end, but it would be mm-hmm. on your end. Um, and I guess I would learn stuff. So we figured why not? And here yeah. we are. <laughs> here we are. Um, so how how many found footage things have you seen? Like, obvi- I, I assume you've seen Blair Witch. Yeah, yeah. I've, That's I mean, the only actual found footage project that I have seen <laughs> outside of God. like web, web series stuff, obviously, but. Have you seen Cloverfield? I feel like that's the most mainstream. I've heard of Cloverfield. It is referenced when I talk about found footage in context mm-hmm. of like horror stuff, but um, mm-hmm. I've never, never actually watched it. I, I think that's a fun one if you like monster movies. I have seen a ton. I've seen a lot because in oh, it's, wow. it's like a pretty, it's a go-to for horror. Like it's the, especially low budget horror. And I, that's why I have mixed feelings about it, because I think it sometimes is just like a lazy way to do a horror movie, but sometimes it's really innovative and fun. So I wouldn't, I don't watch a lot of it. Like it's not my favorite genre, subgenre of mm-hmm. filmmaking types, but when it's really well done, I do enjoy it. So what would you define as lazy found footage? Not necessarily like naming names of projects, but like in your opinion, what defines a lazy found footage project? Where I think it's just... You, you're you just like, I'm going to roll the camera and point it at everything, you know, and just mm-hmm. there's no shot construction happening even within the the sort of like gimmick of it. Of course, you sure. you are supposed to have it feel like it's a roaming eye at times, but there, there should still be thought put into it. And then, of course, like lighting, I would say is a big, big one. Laziness is to me thinking like, oh, I can get away with not having a creative eye in terms of how I light things just because it's supposed to look bad. It's supposed to look like it's a cell phone video or just like someone with an old VHS or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes almost like an excuse to be thoughtless about the filmmaking. Yeah. And then I guess a pet peeve of mine that's a little bit more just maybe like my own thing (laughs) and not so much I I don't think this bothers other people nearly as much, but the very first found footage film I saw was Blair Witch and I was 10 and it was in theaters. And the movie ends where, well, basically, I'm I'm assuming everyone who's listened has either seen it or doesn't care because it came out. Spoilers for Blair Witch from 30 years ago, everybody. (laughs) From 1999. But they die. All the characters die at the end. They're all, they go into the witch's house and they're all like, left in the basement staring at the wall or whatever from what I, I haven't seen it in years like probably mm-hmm. at least a decade but that's what I recall and the camera is just left down there and the implication is that 
anyone who goes in that house is going to die. Like, there's no getting out. There's no getting out of the Blair Witch prod, like the Blair Witch's house. And so, yeah, yeah. And so how then are we watching this video? And to me, that's the thing that bothers me the most is when you've created sort of a world and like a logic and it's the entire crux of your thing that's trying to make it believable. And then you just throw it out the window because you haven't come up with a reason for why the audience would be watching this. That, That makes sense in the world you've built and the rules you've set. And that to me is lazy, even though like Blair Witch was one, was innovative for its time. You could talk about it on the sort of low budget filmmaking, viral marketing campaigns and in its mm-hmm. genius in a lot of ways. But I know the production designer from Blair Witch, actually. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And so I like I point that out just because 10 year old me was bothered by that. <laughs> Adults that's were. That's exactly the thing that bothers me, too. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm glad. Like, And as someone who makes it, I'm sure that's something you really think about, like thinking about mm-hmm. how what is the logic of this being watched by people. So it bothers me when people don't think about that, especially now when we've had so many found footage films where it's not like the gimmick itself is enough to make it creative and and a fun idea. Yeah, yeah. I think that, so it's interesting because like obviously you're coming into found footage knowledge from the horror side of things. Mm -hmm. And while I have seen Blair Witch and and I'm aware of of things like um, the, isn't it the paranormal activity? Pseudo, Mm -hmm. is it totally found footage or just pseudo found footage? No, it's it's all found footage. Okay, so I am familiar with that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But actually my entry point to found footage was narrative vlog web series, Mm -hmm. uh, like the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, which accurate is, not accurately, but is uh, incidentally having its 10-year reunion right now. It's been 10 years since the Lizzie Bennet Diaries came out. And that was kind of my entry point to found footage. And I am kind of glad for that because as much as a lot of narrative vlog web series, especially at this point in time, are fairly rote and like just the same thing over and over again, I think there is an interesting element of it that a lot of horror movies don't really have to contend with which is sort of like the audience side of things Mm -hmm. and the fact that this is not just a story being captured as like a primary source and the camera is part of the world but also the audience is part of the world and I think that when done right that is a really exciting like additional dimension to storytelling and narrative even if you don't make it interactive with like the literal audience the implication that there is in fact a known viewer of a story completely changes the dynamics of the characters and i i find that like a really exciting and fascinating sort of puzzle to put together and i i I think i also was endeared to found footage as a concept because like the last prose thing i wrote (laughs) prior to the novel I'm writing right now, because I can't help myself, was an epistolary novel, primary source documents. You know, I wrote my senior thesis novel in college was, and I think I may have talked about this on this podcast before, but it was a novel about a senior in high school. And the story was told via blog posts that she posted publicly, blog posts that she put on a secret blog under an assumed name, text message conversations, comments, uh, uh, comment section conversations, Facebook status updates things like Mm -hmm. that like the entire narrative played out in primary source documents and i have always loved that kind of storytelling because it feels so much more raw and you have to do a lot more work to put things together but you also get to focus a lot more on dialogue 
and mm-hmm. found footage is that but for the film world where it's like you are watching people's liter like you, like the the way in which information is conveyed to you is direct there's no omniscience like we're never going to see someone in a position where they feel totally safe mm-hmm. or alternatively we are and that also says something completely unique when we're talking in context of like a found footage narrative world. And so, yeah, from from like a writing perspective, I think that weirdly, <laughs> I, I find the writing of found footage projects to be a lot more exciting than the filmmaking side mm. of it. The filmmaking mm. side of it is important, to your point. And I definitely agree from the perspective of at least my expertise, which is narrative vlog web series. People love to do a bad job and say, well, she's a college student. She wouldn't know how to light a scene. And it's like, okay, (laughs) we're making a movie. Heightened reality is fine, actually. And I'm pretty sure the suspension of disbelief will be on your side if you learn how to light a fucking scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that aside, I think that, yeah, the narrative sort of distinctions of found footage storytelling is really exciting. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I like, I also like how it it forces you to be creative on the filmmaking side and on the writing side. As a filmmaker, I would probably find it intriguing to, to be challenged with that. Like, how do I make this feel creative and unique in a world of so much found footage, especially on the horror side? And I think that there, there are fun ways to play with it, but so often it is just like, this person's holding a camera. And and walking around a space. (laughs) And like, that's really all you get. Yeah, I think something else that I really like about found footage from a filmmaking perspective is that because the camera, even if it's static, probably has to take in a lot more of its surroundings, production design becomes a lot more important because Mm -hmm. you're probably going to be staying in a single shot for a little bit longer. Even if you're not doing a vlog, like presumably you are staying in the same space for a while. And so it gives you more opportunities to really dig deep into like what would be in this person's space? What mm-hmm. what what other visual storytelling cues can we give when we're not able to like cut back and forth from different angles? Mm-hmm. Uh, and also I think that it it it's almost sort of the most theatrical, like mm-hmm. theatrical being like theater reminiscent yeah. of mm-hmm. the filmmaking styles, which I also find really interesting. I technically, I guess, started in theater, started in theater with an asterisk. I did theater mm-hmm. in high school and a little bit in college. And so technically I did theater before film, but I would by no means call myself a theater person. But even that being said, like I've been on enough theatrical productions that it is interesting how similar they are to found footage. And I find that fun too, because I mm-hmm. think that theater is in many ways, both more and less of an actor's medium and mm-hmm. found footage filmmaking requ- like demands a lot more from the actors because you can't always manufacture pacing in post. Yeah, absolutely. You can't. Yeah. I mean, unless you're, that's the, that goes back to the lazy thing of like, are they constantly cutting you know, it's like, why Why did they stop recording at this moment and why did they start again? Mm-hmm. As opposed to just like letting it run and then you have to, then all the actors have to nail every single beat and yep. the camera also has to nail every single beat because there's no cuts. And Exactly. And that it could be like a fun, again, a fun sort of challenge, but it could also be super lazy. And so it's like, how do you find that balance and, 
And how do you justify starting and stopping the camera? When you said that you were annoyed that you didn't know how the footage got out of the Blair Witch House, <laughs> yeah. uh, I was like, that's exactly my, my, my exact same major problem with found footage. And I remembered somewhere in the back of my mind that there was some project that I was watching that had a similar issue. And then I remembered, I don't know what the project is, but I was watching like a, a TV show, maybe. I think there was like a, I was watching a TV show and they, they did like sort of a found footage special episode episode like some you know I watch a lot of procedurals and procedurals like to do very special episodes where they do something kind of distinct with the filmmaking because like that's the only thing that could at this point you know give us some variation Mm -hmm. (laughs) not for nothing but there's an entire bones episode from the like shot from the perspective of an unidentified child's skull in the lab (laughs) and like literally the entire sequences all of the sequences the entire episode were from like the table of the lab (laughs) out of the orbital sockets of a child's skull so bizarre god i love bones (laughs) anyways but there was another procedural that i was watching at some point where they had like a found footage style episode and i noticed that they had because they couldn't help themselves and decided not to commit fully irritatingly like two or three different quote unquote cameramen and therefore angles. The problem Mm. was that they weren't careful enough with like um, the staging of where each camera was that even though they literally had to be recording the same thing because it was like all over the course of a single conversation, you would have been able to see the camera people from certain angles. Like there Mm. was no way they could be capturing the angles that they were of the entire scene without capturing each other. Like there, it physically was impossible for a camera Mm. person not to be seen in one of the other shots. And they didn't do that. And they they were doing it because they wanted to still have multiple angles to cut to because they didn't trust their own filmmaking enough. But like it completely broke my immersion because I'm like, how are you getting this shot? I know you're not over there because I saw the other angle and you're not there. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. this isn't, there's there's literally no way that you can be there right now. And I was so frustrated the entire time. That's funny because I feel like that, I one of my favorite genres that, there aren't many of, but when they're done well, I enjoy them, are kind of like fake documentaries. And I feel like mm-hmm. that's the well-done version of that. Sure. Where Yeah, the mockumentary style. Yeah, the mockumentary style where you're kind of like, there's a reason why this is edited and there's a reason why there are multiple angles. And the, one that do, the ones that do it well do show the other camera people in mm-hmm. each other's shots. And it feels like a real documentary that's been edited together. And and so I like that, I think, to me, is kind of the, the happy medium that, that I like. But yeah, I haven't seen too many found footage that aren't horrors or thrillers. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. I can't really. I watched that one that you had um, mentioned in, I think, 2020, and it was the Woman with the Eating Disorder web series. Oh, the binge special pandemic yes. miniseries. I watched uh, how that. to lose weight during the apocalypse or something like that. Yeah, but that was kind of like, I think that's like the only found footage thing other than stuff like obviously your <laughs> yours mm. and other friends have made a few things, but recently I can't think of anything I've seen that hasn't been a horror film that was found footage. Mhm. Well, yeah, cuz like it's it's obvious like why found footage is a good thing for horror you know there's so much more like control you have over what you are literally framing or not framing out Mm -hmm. and it's you know it's it's more visceral it's more first person and all of those things are obviously very beneficial to that i think 
just to, because I brought up Cloverfield before, I think where that fails, like that movie fails, is when you see news footage of the monster where the characters, because the whole movie are just like with these characters and their video camera and they're running through the streets of New York City because something's happening and like we're isolated to them and their perspective. And the only real glimpse you get of the monster at one point is on a bridge when like a big sort of tentacle looking thing like destroys the bridge while they're on and they're running. And the camera, the chaos of the camera makes it work really well because you're, it's it's great for low budget too because like if right. you can afford the the practical effects you can have the sound effect and then the camera swings to the reaction because the person that's like what they're seeing and experiencing and so that all worked really well but then at one point they pass TVs and there's like news footage and you get a good big glimpse of the monster and it kind of takes away from like your imagination of I've heard that before about Cloverfield specifically but I've also yeah. heard that in other um horror movies like people saying like it's always scarier when you don't see the monster yeah yeah and then there's like another scene and I think that one is maybe that particular one I buy from like an I, I get by that they would pass this news like they'd see the tvs and the whatever and see the news footage I can buy that but mm-hmm. then there's a later one where you get like a full glimpse up at the monster with the camera the guy's like under it and he puts the camera up at the face and like that to me is a little too forced because it's just like he'd be dead he like wouldn't even get to that point so yeah I think like what I like about it is the earlier earlier scenes from Cloverfield where you can kind of use it to your advantage in terms of making the low budget aspect of your production work for you and still have like big appeal mm-hmm. there's another movie that was like i'm rambling now but there's another movie that no, I can't this is remember. this is all fascinating to me <laughs> i can't remember the title of it but and it's not found footage except there's a scene that is and mm. i can't remember the narrative reason for why like we're suddenly in his perspective mm-hmm. but it's a guy who has to like go and shoot up a place and it was a clearly a low budget film that didn't have the money to have this big action sequence mm-hmm. and so he cuts the lights right before he goes in and so then the whole screen goes dark and it's all just sounds and you hear the guns you hear the fighting and you hear all like the grunts and whatever and it's really effective from a sound perspective and then the lights come back on and the vi- the visuals back and so that sure. to me is like I think gimmicky but you can sort of justify it and it works in the story because if it's like a camera that wouldn't work in low light then it makes sense that we wouldn't see anything mm-hmm. and so I, I like I like the ones that work within the parameters of the reality that they've set and totally. I but so so rarely do they do that and so rarely are they that creative at least mm-hmm. again on the horror side so often it's just like walking through a haunted house holding a camera and right yeah, once again, like you still have to be a thoughtful filmmaker about <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Like, you know, they're they're using their limitations because of budget, not like allowing their their limitations to create new opportunities. And I would say sort of like the flip side of like the Cloverfield thing uh and and also just the low budget nature of not having to necessarily show something you can't afford to show is the way that Carmilla did it. Carmilla the lesbian vampire vlog series from Canada mm-hmm. from a couple of years ago around the same time as the Lizzie Meta Diaries actually. So it's almost been a decade. They basically like the the premise of that show for people who are unfamiliar is it's about college students at 
a, a at a college that there was a lot of supernatural happenings at and nobody seemed overly like concerned with the supernatural with her, which I always liked like they were like ah yeah big supernatural thing happened today it was very annoying I was trying to get to Spanish class and if anyone has seen brains my web series you know how much that appeals to me but something that Carmilla had to do is because they decided that for at least most of the series they eventually broke out of this but for most of the series it was static camera same as Lizzie Bennett like they it was a camera on sticks and the entire scene played out as like a mini theater production with jump cuts in a single room and as a result obviously they couldn't show us a lot of the you know big fantastical things and so that show really relied on like powerful jump cuts where they would say we're about to leave and it would jump cut to them having just gotten back like covered in you know whatever supernatural Mm. thing just happened to them so you know that 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 was played for comedy but it also allowed them to do some like fun hair and makeup effects and things like that but the other thing that they had to rely on was the power of their performers Mm-hmm. And like the performers really had to sell like if you're going to explain to me the cool shit that frankly, I would have rather been watching. It has to be the most compelling fucking retelling of all time. And to their credit, they had an exceptional cast, especially their their lead to Elise Bauman, who um, I think we talked about not long ago because she was in that queer Hallmark movie yeah. that we both enjoyed. <laughs> She's incredible. I love Elise Bauman. Ever since I saw her in Carmilla, I'm like, I will watch everything you're in. You are captivating. And mm-hmm. then her scene partner. Natasha and something they were both very very good and like that show would not have worked with the cheekiness and the like we don't have the budget to go outside unless their their performers were that powerful and so that's also something that's like a lot more important in found footage which can go very wrong and I've seen it go wrong in a number of other worse web series that were just ripoffs of (laughs) Lizzie Bennett and Carmilla but I've also seen Go Really Right. And that that is, it, you know, you think that found footage will take less time. And in some ways it does. You know, in some ways, like, you just have to nail a single scene and then mm-hmm. you can move on. And, like, you know, you can clear a lot more pages a day doing it mm-hmm. like that. But it also takes a lot more time and there's more pressure on different elements than Mm -hmm. otherwise. You know, you have different pressures on the actors where, you know, to your point from earlier, like you can't just if you if you mess up in the middle of a scene, it's not like, oh, don't worry, just take it back to where you messed up and move forward. It's like you can't cut in there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You can maybe ADR a stumble later on to varying degrees of success varying degrees that mm-hmm. I outlined specifically in a video essay that everyone hates on YouTube about how much Marlon Brando's a dick, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> you usually just have to start right over. And the longer that takes, we had a scene in Brain season two that like, sometimes you can use jump cuts, especially if you're doing narrative logs like we were doing and like my experiences in. But there are some times where you can't and like, it wouldn't make sense for there to be jump cuts because it's a sequence that is just playing out in real time. And especially for like, for us, emotional beats and like action sequences, we really tried to stay in the moment so that like, it wasn't overly obvious how we were like manufacturing things. So this was an episode late in season two. um, And it was my character and my roommate character. We were having like an, uh, a kind of come to Jesus argument interaction and it was a like four to six minute scene that we just had to play straight like we had to just have an argument for four minutes unbroken we had I think at the end 29 takes of that scene before we managed to get it that is like who's that director that has a million scenes Kubrick 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was like Kubert level shit, but it wasn't the director being rude. It was that like we just it was such a long, hard scene. And, you know, we were doing a web series. We didn't have time to rehearse it, although we did our best. And it was a very emotionally charged scene. Mm. And I am a writer who doesn't like to make it easy on my performers. So like mm. I'd given my poor co-star a lot of like tongue twisters. So he was struggling and like we were both just getting more and more frustrated. And it worked because we were both supposed to be frustrated in the scene. But holy shit, was that a long fucking day to do a single four minute scene. So I will Mm -hmm. say from the perspective of filming found footage, yes, some things are easier, but a lot of other things are much harder. Like it's it's not a shortcut in the way that I think a lot of people offhandedly assume it is. Uh, It's only a shortcut if you're not being thoughtful. And frankly, you should always be thoughtful. So that should never be an excuse. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a trade off. Yeah, you're not like spending as much time on coverage because that typically mm-hmm. is what takes the longest is getting all the different shots mm-hmm. to make setting sure up lighting covered. for yeah. each individual but then you're really devoting it to the performances and the pacing and 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 making sure that as the camera move like you you're not getting a light stand things like that yeah. like a lot of the times for brains we would if people had to like hold a light or like a boom or something like they'd have to move with the camera and mm-hmm. that's always you see that in in films where they're doing some fun like camera move stuff but like when that's your entire show or your yeah. entire project like everyone is constantly on the move and if you make one wrong move like like you you out yourself and it completely breaks the illusion. Yeah, it reminds me of um in the last few years all the networks have been doing the live musicals like mm-hmm. where they're theater productions but they're being taped for TV and people are watching them on their TVs and so there's there's this like mixed theater element where everyone has to mm-hmm. nail their performance. There's no cuts and redos, but you also have to coordinate with now camera movement in a way that sure. wouldn't have been the case in normal theater. And so it's this like mixed medium that makes it much harder. And some do it really well and are like directing and shooting for what it is, which is to be watched on TV. And others are just like failing because they're just trying to shoot a live musical, you know? And so it's I think that's kind of the same thing where it's like you're if you're really shooting for what it is, this kind of innovative, creative, unique, mixed thing, um, you can get really great results. But if you're just trying to like record a play <laughs> where everyone just it's all in real time and like you're just letting it roll, then you end up with not the greatest of end products. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it really is in a whole different way, not in a in a unique way like that this happens, but like in a whole new way you you all have to work together in unison. Again, not to say that you don't already do that in other forms of filmmaking, but I think it takes a different style of collaboration that not everyone mm-hmm. is prepared for. And so you really got to like your crew and like yeah. make sure that every nobody resents each other otherwise be a long fucking day and i think as a director like it would require a different kind of muscle because for me i'm always thinking about like what's what is in this particular frame and did i nail the moment rather did they nail the moment Mm -hmm. that i know i'm going to use in the edit Mm -hmm. and instead it's like It's sort of like shooting your wide shot where you have to watch everything, but the stakes are much higher because you're not going to be able to cut out of that wide shot. And so you have to just make sure that every little piece is there and your attention needs to be split and you just kind of can't miss a beat. Like 
you have to hear, make sure the line was delivered. And obviously you'll have like your script supervisor and all, all the people that are also watching for continuity and all, and to make sure they hit their marks and everything. But like as a director, I think it requires a different muscle because I know as a director, I'm often thinking about my edit. I'm thinking about like, how is this going to be cut together? And I would have to kind of let go of that and be much more like, is this what I just recorded exactly what I will feel comfortable putting on screen for people to watch as is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that was definitely a complication. For Brains, I did direct one episode of Brains in season two. Uh, I cannot imagine having to have directed everything. Like, thank God for Andrew Williams, who is our primary mm -hmm. director on Brains and who did a genuinely really wonderful job. Like, I learned so much from watching him direct Brains. The episode that I did direct, I chose to direct it because I wanted to try it. It was technically the first time I'd ever directed. It was, even though I, I often consider Ace and Anxious my director debut because it was the only time I'd ever directed the entirety of a project by myself, um, you know, shot list and all. But technically, the first time I actually acted as director was on an episode of Brains, uh, actually the one right before the the one that took us 29 takes to nail, because it was <laughs> the first episode that my character was barely in. I, I only had like a cameo at the very end. And I was like, thank God, because I do not feel confident enough as an actor to also direct myself. And and uh, it was really, really fun. And I remember like one of my one of the hardest parts of that was the primary scene that I was directing was all one location, all one shot. But then when my character entered was, of course, when all the complicated filmmaking had to come in. And we were trying to like do a, a hidden match cut where the characters that I that were in one room had to pick up the camera and move it to the next room. Mm -hmm. But of course, we needed to have uh, some kind of cover of that uh, of that sequence so that like we could seamlessly cut between them. Like we we couldn't just literally have them pick up the camera. So we we had to like that coordination took a while just to like nail the transition and make sure that like the actor covered the viewfinder as much as possible with his hand and then like matching some sound that so that the camera could move around. Mm -hmm. And then the sequence was they move from run, one room to another. I come into the apartment that we were shooting in making out with somebody and like <laughs> clearly about to do something else then we have to break apart at the perfect moment and uh then the camera whips away and we have to clean ourselves up <laughs> because i had lipstick on and it was truly all over me then they went back to us we finished the scene there's a push in and then i helped to call cut watch the entire sequence back not cringe at myself making out with a, a person i barely knew on camera <laughs> give some direction and then start over like i didn't even start the sequence in the yeah. same room as everyone i would basically call camera rolling close the door grab onto the actor i was making out with shout action through the door wait exactly three seconds and then burst in and do it all over again and it was like so chaotic and it was the <laughs> end of our day it worked out and i'm pretty i'm mostly happy with how that scene went but like i cannot imagine <laughs> having to direct the entire thing like that it was certainly not as an actor it was way yeah, too much yeah i mean to like you're at, like you have that added layer of being and i was the running actor. sound i was our sound wow. person <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then we eventually had to do some ADR for that scene because it was just there was too much going on that I could not even account for, even if I tried. So that was that was also an added frustration. But it worked out. And I really did like it. I would like to direct found footage again. Uh, someday. The other thing, though, that some people know, I think, from Brain Season 1 is that our first season, we didn't have a DP. And I'm sure we talked about this in our first projects 
uh, episode where I talked about our deep, the DP that we did try to get mm-hmm. losing mm-hmm. his camera between days one and two of shooting. Absolute mm-hmm. nightmare. So I shot the entirety of season one from the camcorder. Like when my character was holding the camera, that was me also holding the camera and acting as like the pseudo DP when I had to be like physically holding it. And I was also running sound and I was also the lead actor. And I was also the AD. And most of the time I was also the script supervisor. So like that was chaos. But like there were some things that we actually picked up from me holding the camera that we maintained in season two when Brandon Smalls took over DP and I no longer had to touch the camera, blessedly, because there were moments in season one where like, when I got into a scene, I would get distracted from my purpose of filming. And that actually sort of worked out in some cases, because like so much of Brains is me like, half flirting, half interrogating the guy that I liked. Mm -hmm. And there is a moment in the pilot that at first was unconscious and then became conscious once Andrew, my director, reviewed the tape and started a new uh, scene, um, which was in the very first interaction with the boy that I'm obsessed with. He is like addressing a group of students and he's very tall. The the, the actor who played Damien, the character Damien, was like (laughs) 6'5". And he's like standing above everyone and he's like just huge in frame and as he's giving this monologue to the 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 gathered students in the scene unconsciously i started the camera started to like drift down his body a little bit like distracted and like looking Mm -hmm. at like his biceps and like his hands gripping his uh his baseball bat and then jerked up when i remembered fuck i'm supposed to be filming him talking and Mm -hmm. i i don't remember how much of a conversation was but i know andrew noticed that and was like hey do that again That's actually very funny because it's this sort of weird thing where I'm literally being voyeuristic because my character is the perspective we're seeing it from. And Mm -hmm. even if you can't see me, you can tell what I'm looking at based on where I'm putting the camera or where I'm not. And so that like the personality of the like moving around POV camera became Mm -hmm. such a secondary language and perspective that would often stand in for my own acting. Thank God, because I <laughs> I don't feel that great about my own acting. And so for season two, when Brandon Smalls took over, he had like a much nicer camera. He had a shoulder rig, which he was usually filming on. But like he... <laughs> he imbued so much sass into like the way he held that camera because he really, really wanted to nail like when he had to be my character. Mm -hmm. And so like he would like walk differently when it was when he was pretending to be me in a scene like there was a lot more like hip swaying which was very funny (laughs) and like he just had like this very sassy way of like whipping back and forth when the camera needed to move perspective and Mm -hmm. that was such a like a unexpected thing that I had never planned for even though I'd written this show to have that point of view and Mm -hmm. that was a really fun thing that we kind of discovered in the filmmaking of like how the camera can be an extension of character I love that. That's cool. It's it's subtle sometimes, but like mm-hmm. it definitely made a difference between like a straight filmed scene and a scene filmed with that in mind. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Yeah. Okay. So if you're going to do found footage, even if you're just doing like a segment of your project as found footage, which also totally fair. Sometimes it's not appropriate to do an entire story found footage, but you know, there's moments. If you're going to do it, here are some things that like you absolutely need to figure out. that all have some kind of impact on the way that the audience absorbs the the story and also how your characters perform within it. So first question is, of course, who or what is filming? Like, is this a character within the scene that we know? 
Is it a documentary filmmaker, like in most mockumentaries? Mm -hmm. Is the mockumentary filmmaker known to the characters? Um, And also, why are they filming? Like, is this, you know, like all from the perspective of like a nest camera? And so it's just always filming and, and we happen to be cutting together footage that way. Like, why is this person filming and who are they to the world and the characters? This is an obvious place to start, but still feels worth it to mention. Uh, next is, and this is something that Christina pointed out about Blair Witch, where is the footage stored slash being distributed? And also when? Like, is this footage that we, like, found footage comes from, we have found this footage in the woods, essentially, <laughs> and we are we are now sharing it with you. So, like, where is the footage being stored? On a hard drive? On somebody's, like you know, SD card that they're downloading to their computer. And when are we seeing the footage relative to it being shot? That matters a lot. Also, where is it being distributed? Is this just like, we're putting it on the internet so people see the real story? Are is like the person who filmed it putting it on the internet to share with an audience? You know, what? Uh, also, who is editing it? Is that different from who filmed? If not, or if so, what is their motive for editing this footage together? And what is their point of view? Something that we found on Brains that I didn't anticipate until I started writing later seasons was how much of an unreliable narrator my main character was. Because in my mind, these were primary source documents, right? Like this was her filming literal reality. And even though she was editing, she was only ever editing out like ums and uhs and stuff like that. So like, how could she have a a skewed perspective? She's just showing us what's really happening. But also she was choosing when to start and stop footage. She -hmm. was choosing how she presented information, what she kept in the videos and what parts of the videos she cut to. Like, of course she had a poor view. Of course she had a skewed perspective. So that became much more a part of the storytelling as it went on, like the why, why certain things were kept in and why certain things were not, what things she didn't feel the need to pull her camera out to capture that people would be like, hey, if you'd filmed for two minutes longer, you know, you would have gotten something different. So that's also relevant. What is the point of view of the person editing? And also, can you imbue the editor with some sass? Something that I always liked that Lizzie Bennett did that we eventually stole for brains was that the like first third or maybe even half of the Lizzie Bennett diaries was canonically edited by her best friend. So sometimes mm-hmm. the the character of Lizzie would like make a sarcastic comment about her best friend, always in good fun, of course. And the um, the editor, quote unquote, her best friend would like pa- do a, a pause of the video like the um, what's that called? screen like a freeze frame yeah freeze frame she would freeze frame the video and like you know draw devil horns and a mustache on her friend Mm -hmm. or something like that where it was like it almost became a conversation dialogue between the person filming and the person editing that's really Mm -hmm. fun that's cool we did that on brains eventually because there was a (laughs) there was a long scientific speech that the actor just couldn't get out and like it, it was it was a lot we did not have enough time or money on our project to film it the way that it needed to be filmed and so we ended up having to scrap the video altogether cut together a version of the speech because it was necessary for exposition and then my character as the editor drew a bunch of like (laughs) stick figure representations of the speech and imbued each of those with like silly, you know, a silly point of view and like mocking her friend and drawing like really bad stick figures. Uh, And that became like a, a, an element of personality that could have only come out 
in something that was edited by the person who was making the videos and who like mm. was producing them. So there are some there's some opportunities in the editing that you might not even be thinking about in the writing and filming. I certainly wasn't at first. Is there an audience? Sometimes found footage doesn't have an audience. Sometimes found footage is like, you know, they cut together security cam footage mm. and like presumably that information exists somewhere. But like it, instead of there being an omniscient camera person to tell the story, there's kind of like an omniscient editor, mm -hmm. which is a thing that you don't normally get in most film. But yeah, is is there an audience at all? Uh, was there intended to be an audience is a secondary question. So like, did these people intend to capture this footage to share with people or did they always intended to remain secret but somebody else put it out there that completely mm -hmm. changes what is going on on camera speaking of on camera do the characters know that they're being filmed slash do they know that they are on camera which characters because mm -hmm. a big part of certainly brains was that there were occasional sequences where we knew we needed to capture something but it wouldn't make sense for my character to be like upfront about the fact that she's filming. And I don't know if we always did a great job at establishing why I thought it was important to film, but we did, we were really cautious of these are sequences where I don't think this person knows they're on camera, either at that moment or at all. And so we had to figure out ways to like, quote unquote, hide the camera, like mm -hmm. hiding it in a bookshelf. We had to show the my character setting up the hidden camera and like pointing it in the right way. And so like that had that added different difficulties. And it also allows for like a faux omniscient camera person where like characters don't necessarily think that they're being observed, which gives you a little bit extra vulnerability that you sometimes don't get if the characters know they are observed. But if they do know they are observed, how does that change their behavior? And what things might slip out as a result that like, or what things might they be hiding that like you have to reveal at a later time, because they are cognizant of having some level of audience on them. And then finally, speaking of audience, do the characters on screen know there is an audience? And if so, or if not, at what point in the story? Something else that I think Lizzie Bennet Diaries did really well is for most of it and most of her courtship with the Darcy character, he is not aware that there is an audience or, or he's not aware that she's making videos at all, I think. And then once he gets aware of the fact that she's making videos, he doesn't, I don't think he's not really clear that there is an audience and the moment at which he realizes that there is an audience and there is also an on internet record of how she feels about him over the course of the past couple of months and he catches up on the videos she's been making without thinking that he'd ever see them that fundamentally changes like the power dynamics in the story and like you know so it, it completely recontextualizes all of this fun stuff that she's been doing now that we are aware that he is aware and so like she wouldn't have been as flippant and upfront for the like the primary course of the story had she known he was watching and it's immediately evident at which point she does know. So we kind of get the best of both worlds and like a clear turning point in their relationship and her understanding of like the power that her words have. So that can also add an entirely new layer. No, I think that's awesome. I think that's all really good for people to hear. And yeah, those like the, the specifics, definitely I can see how they would change so much of the story and how you convey everything. Completely. Like, you know, we're being recorded right now and we are aware of that. And that mm -hmm. does change the way that we talk to each other. Like the way yeah. that we talk to each other off mic versus on, even though we're as transparent as we possibly can be on this podcast is different. 
Yeah. You know? Yeah. The the way that the conversation flows is different. The way that like we we try not to interrupt each other, you know, mm-hmm. or like actually no, you finish your thought. Like that's that's not really how we talk regularly. Most people don't talk like that. On more ta- way more tangents than we even do on this podcast. I mean, I guess that must be technically true, but it can't, it doesn't feel true. (laughs) Having listened to us talk on mic a lot, I don't, that, that seems wrong, but okay. (laughs) I think, I mean, there are definitely times where I'm like, that reminds me of something that's not at all relevant (laughs) to what we're supposed to be talking about, so I won't say it. You clearly have more self-control than me. (laughs) One thing that came to mind, though, what your second to last bullet point there Mm -hmm. there's um a horror film called vhs that is honestly fine like it's not i I wouldn't (laughs) say that it's worth watching but it's a bunch of it's an anthology of a bunch of different shorts and they're all found footage in different ways and so it's interesting and i think it came out in 2012 maybe like 14 something like that and none of them really stood out to me except for one that I think like if I were to watch it again, I probably would have some issues with the male gaze aspect of it. It was, you know, written and directed by men and the sort of like- It came out in 2012. Thank you. Yeah, that's what I thought. But I saw it a few years later. But so yeah, from from 2012, like it's probably got some issues. But Mm. uh, the premise is also like the point is the male gaze. But one thing I really liked about it was, so the, the setup of it is that it's a bunch of guys who- have hidden a camera in a pair of glasses and mm. their goal is to make an amateur porn video without a woman knowing. Mm. And so they like go to a bar, they pick up a woman, they bring her back to the motel they're staying at. And it's all very like on her face because it's glasses on the guy's mm-hmm. face. And what I enjoyed about it is that she, I'm spoiling this for anyone, but I think it's still worth watching just for mm. like, the way it plays out technically she turns out to be a vampire and mm-hmm. and so like and not not like a typical vampire she's like really monster ish and mm-hmm. she ends up she ends up killing him but what's really fun is at the end she flies away and so you get this like you get the cool visual effects that are really quick glimpses because of the way mirrors are used in the room. So like him mm-hmm. turning his head, you get a wider shot than just like of her face, which is the main oh, sort of cool. point of view. And then he, she ends up taking him into the air. So it's all like one shot, no cuts. Mm-hmm. And the view is him looking down at his own legs in the air. And so obviously done probably like through a drone or something. Yeah. But you get this like feeling of much higher budget, much bigger effects budget, but really it's just like a camera in the air with with, like legs, something that like legs. And so I thought that was just like a fun, small, tight found footage that really worked for me from a technical level. And it was just, it, it didn't, it played into the low budget aspect, but you still got like a payoff of seeing enough of the monster with these quick glimpses by being creative about where you placed mirrors in the room. That's cool. And I, That's th- I thought that was cool. a mix, a mix of what you were saying where it's like, do they know that they're on camera? Do they not? And in this case, the guys knew, but mm-hmm. the woman did not. And that completely changes the power dynamics in the scene. And it yeah. changes like how we are viewing it. And it makes like, even, you know, 
these guys don't sound like they're amazing guys, but no, not at all. Theoretically, they are kind of our protagonists, and I like the fact that like found footage allows you to rely on the protagonist of the film and also not like them and like fundamentally mm-hmm. mistrust them, even when we're seeing it from their perspective. I just think that 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 presents so many cool narrative opportunities and challenges that are impossible to look around. Something that that reminded me of though is my favorite shot from Brains is you know we're we're doing a zombie web series so of course there were zombies in it but the fact that we were doing found footage also allowed us to mostly place zombies kind of in the background a lot but we knew we wanted a handful of like really fun visceral close-ups because our our two zombie makeup artists over the course of that show were so good that like we wanted to show them off when we could um appropriately and so there's this one scene in season two again where a zombie unexpectedly comes out of a a, a nearby room and like you there there's there's this whole allegedly uncut sequence we use a lot of whip cuts to cut around the like continuous shots you know we did it very birdman style and so i'm uh, my character is walking down a hallway and like filming a person that she's talking to and we pass a dark classroom and if you look really closely you can actually see the zombie waiting for us so like it's it's really quick you wouldn't have noticed it if you weren't like really paying attention but he's there like just in the shadows and but the camera moves on because we're just having this conversation and then the conversation hits like a catharsis point my character whips around which is the point at which we we hide the cut uh she's filming the the other character and they're like kind of having this standoff when the zombie comes out of the door that it was the doorway that it was in slams her to the wall and then chases my character down the hallway we used a i think we we, we've shared this before but like we use like a slider and the zombie is like coming at the camera and it's like such a fun visceral like point of view shot because like you don't really get that in a lot of zombie media you're always at a third person sort of angle sometimes you get it right up front but like i do feel like you know we are the camera person as viewers and so watching a zombie like bear down on you down a darkened hallway is like it's so much scarier and and more tense than i think that a lot of shots like that for monsters Mm -hmm. are and hey that's found footage baby and then i think similar to the other ones that we've talked about like the camera eventually gets dropped and then we hear things like off camera and you see people's feet (laughs) and then you see somebody come back and eventually retrieve the camera and like that becomes a part of the story where we can like stage the fight scene off off screen but we can stage the like intro to the fight scene on and so it's it's about finding that balance of like what is absolutely necessary to show so that it doesn't look like we're you know complete fakers (laughs) but when Mm -hmm. is a climactic moment where you can put some stuff off camera and use Foley to to kind of fill in the blanks without feeling cheap. It's cool, yeah. But yeah, I just I think there's so many cool opportunities there. Especially I think just on a character level of like if a person knows they're on camera and they know it's going out to an audience like presenting themselves to the world and presenting themselves to other characters and then the moments where like they don't think they're on camera but they actually are and like how that changes the entire like status I there's just there's so many opportunities and I feel like people aren't using them like they I I also get frustrated with narrative logs that stay in one place some shows it makes sense you know they're setting up their room but like something that we really were conscious of is that so many narrative log web series use that as a crutch they would place their their actors against a wall they'd add some relevant or easter eggy posters and like that's it that's all you saw for the entirety of the show but 
even if you have great actors and a lot of these didn't it wasn't enough and also like that's not how people use their cameras even youtubers like youtubers mm -hmm. are constantly moving their cameras around and doing travel vlogs and like filming mm -hmm. snippets of their friends and like it seemed like so unnecessarily limiting on both a storytelling point and a filmmaking point to like confine ourselves to a single place like even lizzie bennett diaries which technically was took place all in like one shot per episode even though they did move around occasionally like in location but like the camera never changed but they also had a lot of side like not spin-off necessarily because they were all part of the same universe but they were like ancillary supplemental series that were filmed differently so like the character of Lydia Bennett has her own vlog series that goes on kind of parallel to the main series and you don't need to watch it to understand what's going on in the main series but it is helpful and it gives mary kate wiles who is lydia and who is an incredible performer a little bit more time to kind of like exposit her own stuff and then at the point at which lizzie bennett realizes that her younger sister has her own vlog series and gets to watch for herself as she gets more and more gaslit by the wickham character like it adds a whole new dimension. And because Lydia Bennett is, you know, not as careful as Lizzie and not as put together, her vlogs are often like vertically filmed and just sort of like on the street and off the cuff. And so they're a lot more raw and they're a lot more expository and just sort of like in the moment and visceral. And I like the fact that they did both, I think, is to their credit and was a smart decision because it's hard to like know something is happening without getting to see it and it's mm -hmm. also it allowed them to get a little bit less static occasionally with their filmmaking which i think was a good choice yeah one thing that i just i guess like i see a lot of popping up recently that i kind of wanted to touch on is the found footage but like limiting it to a computer screen and mm -hmm. so I don't know if you saw that movie searching that came out i, I didn't but i heard ago. about it a lot of people like sent it to me yeah, and they're also Unfriended is one that did it fairly recently to a horror movie. But I think that's interesting, especially think like COVID times. Those both those both were made before COVID. Sure. But I think a lot of people started doing it during COVID because you have like Zoom calls as right. the thing. Oh my god, um, there were so many fucking like <laughs> Zoom special episodes, Zoom full web series. I, yeah. If I never hear another <laughs> "Hey, you're on mute" joke yeah. for a Zoom yeah. show again, it will be too soon. Totally. But I did, I think searching doesn't nail it completely, but I did enjoy that one because it's all sort of what I think you like is it's all conversations. So like the entire thing plays out and it's a mystery. It's a, a father whose daughter has gone missing. And so it's all just like him doing research, trying to look up the people she spoke with online and then him having calls with the detective. And there are some moments where it's like, I don't think his... FaceTime would still be open during this moment after the call has ended, but I can buy that it maybe would be. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's like, I don't know, I'm kind of curious if people will continue in that direction, if we'll start to see cre more creativity or if it'll be more of the same. Because yeah, a lot of TV shows in particular did their Zoom episode and some, right. some were more entertaining than others. But I do find like as we're all living online so much more... I feel like there is more to explore in that kind of direction. Totally. Um, but I but I would like to see, I guess, some more creativity there. Yeah, I will say my favorite 
very special COVID episode that took place on Zoom was Mythic Quest. Have you seen Mythic Quest? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I really like I Mythic that Quest. Episode. It was I think that was my favorite version of it. Mm-hmm. Like the they do a thing towards the end where they all like collaborate to do like a fun Zoom mm-hmm. effect that could have only been done in Zoom, like to cheer someone up or something. And like I was bawling. So I think that they <laughs> yeah. did a really clever job with it. But I'll be mm-hmm. honest, I don't think that people are gonna get that creative with it because so much of the world has already gone back to relative normal. Like I feel like if mm-hmm. we lived in a reasonable society that actually did a lockdown, maybe it would yeah. have forced people to get more creative. But like mm-hmm. we were only in true lockdown for I would say most of 2020 and even not even that. 2021, especially once the vaccines rolled out and certainly 2022 so far, like it feels like mostly we're back to normal. And yes, you know, you're we're, we're more picky about who we're spending time with and we don't go out as often. It doesn't feel as different for, I think, a lot of people. And certainly with all these productions back roughly in the yeah. same swing of things they always have been, you know, what, what's what's that phrase like something necessitates creativity? Uh, in any case, there, there aren't as many yeah. limitations <laughs> that require creativity on the part sure. of certainly holiday holiday Hollywood filmmakers. So I don't, I, I regret, I regret to assume that I don't think we're going to see a lot of big strides in that direction anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, I think about all the disabled filmmakers, though, who like That's true. can't, who just like cannot get back to quote unquote normal. Mm-hmm. Like, even though I personally, I don't think it would, I don't think I would die having now been like boosted. I don't think mm-hmm. I would die from COVID, but I really don't want it. And right. so, and I don't want to be responsible for exposing anyone else. So I'm not getting back to production, but there are people who just like, it's not even a choice. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, everyone's just kind of ignoring that that's a huge part of population. Yeah, no, I agree. And and I want to be clear. I don't think this is a good thing. Yeah, no, totally. Quote I don't, unquote, yeah. getting back to normal. <laughs> and I also think it's, it's certainly a, a point in like, frustration to the lack of like disabled representation in Hollywood that nobody is Mm -hmm. considering this and using it as an opportunity to give a new like style of production a chance um and -hmm. hopefully in an upcoming episode we may even touch on this a little bit but yeah I I unfortunately think that the primary Hollywood machine is not (laughs) slowed down at all and while there were some interesting like pseudo innovations early on Honestly, most of the way that Hollywood responded to COVID on a filmmaking scale is just shit that web series creators have been doing for two decades now, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, which is, you know, a point in our favor and shade in Hollywood's like Mm -hmm. there is so much cool innovation happening on a stylistic perspective and on a like, you know, diverse narratives perspective on the Internet that unfortunately is just drowning itself out and largely overlooked by Hollywood and it's just too bad I don't want to see another fucking Marvel movie about the same two characters like I like Marvel and I don't want to do this anymore give us something new for the love of God yeah Yeah. (laughs) I don't like Marvel but Yes. Same feelings. <laughs> <laughs> I do think I will say to get us back on the found footage thing really quickly, though, I, I'm curious if you think that found footage has a place 
more prominently in traditional media because I think that the reason it works so well in digital media and like web series is because like it's literally the style in which we are used to consuming media online like when Mm -hmm. I'm watching something from my computer I expect it to be filmed for my direct consumption on my computer and so that changes the way that things are framed and things are presented and it's a lot more like people talking to me and so when you do a show like that even if you're not doing a narrative vlog it feels more natural Um, but like if I were to be in a movie theater I don't know I feel like the intimacy that found footage can create would be a little bit more lost Um, and Mm -hmm. I haven't seen as many big screen ones actually I've technically never seen any big screen ones because I saw Blair Witch just on my computer Um, so I'm curious your thoughts on on that well I think that's why I'm not such a fan because they're so often not cinematic and made for that Mm -hmm. and like I saw searching in theaters when it first came out uh, and it wasn't really something I felt like I needed to see in a theater. You know, it was weird. And that's because, too bad. <laughs> yeah. And and it was, I guess what I liked about it was that I had to like sit there and watch the cursor move across the screen sure. instead of like taking my phone out, which mm-hmm. I feel like I would have done if I had been watching at home on sure. a small screen. But then I also just felt like, why am I sitting in a movie theater watching my computer, watching a computer screen, you know? Mm-hmm. So it just felt like it didn't go together. And I do, I think it's really hard. It's really hard to like justify that choice if you're trying to go for like mass appeal and have a theatrical and do that sort of bigger movie thing. Mm-hmm. And when I have enjoyed it, I've enjoyed it much more at home watching on a smaller screen and usually when it has been like more of a mockumentary or just a kind of direct-to-camera quirky sort of thing I've enjoyed Mm -hmm. that much more than than any of the films I suppose that have attempted it yeah I think it makes it feel more real you know and in a in like it already automatically feels more real if done well obviously because it's designed Mm -hmm. to look like it was a real thing captured but yeah there is something sort of like not novel, but like it feels more right to, yeah, be curled up on your couch and like, you know, opening your computer and saying, oh, I wonder what this person's up to. Like, you know, it it feels like you've stumbled across it, even if you intended to watch it. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's part of the viewing experience that if you plan for it, could be really lovely. I think also because especially on the horror side, so often it is about kind of immersing you into the shoes of the people as much as possible, because that's kind of the only way it works. Like, sure. If it's not going to be cinematic. It's not going to be like beautiful shots. So often it's just like a haunted house and they're walking through it. And so you being in your dark home, I think like puts you there a little bit more than sitting in a cold theater with people crunching their popcorn around you, you know? So from that perspective, I think it just is works better in your favor to, to embrace that it is more of like a home smaller screen sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And the gimmick, like you can buy into the gimmick a little bit more like, oh, this is an under the radar found, like genuinely found footage. Someone found this tape because this camera like somehow made it out of this house mm-hmm. and someone happened across it and they released it unedited for the world to be like enlightened to this scary thing that's happened. So I think that's a little bit you can like go along for the emotional ride if you if you're sitting at home watching it on a computer than if it feels like this big theatrical released thing. Totally. 
And uh, I think we're, we're kind of nearing the end of this conversation. So the final thing I'll say about like the craft of found footage, which is how I introduced this in the intro, um, is that like, I think the thing that always enamored me to epistolary prose writing, especially from the perspective of coming of age stories, which was my thesis topic, I was I was specifically researching and therefore writing a coming of age like young person's story. And I think that epistolary formats are uniquely positioned to do that well, because you're actually watching them mature in the way in which they like our writing and the way in which they are literally talking to the other people around them. And I think that the same can be said for found footage, which is why I love found footage most in context of serialization. Like it's a cool filmmaking trick that can do a lot of fun narrative stuff as a blip in an episode or as an entire movie. But what I really like about the form is that through doing like a web series, you actually really get to watch this person come into their own as a storyteller in their own right. As a person, you get to watch them get better at editing or get more advanced at editing. And there is something kind of so intimate and charming about like getting to go on the production journey with the person you're following as much as the like emotional narrative journey. And that's Mm -hmm. something that you don't really get in another way. Like usually if you're watching a web series or like a series of projects from the same filmmaker, you're naturally seeing them get better, you know, because this is the, the longer you watch their work, the better they probably are at capturing it. But when like, the point of making the work is central to the characterization. It's a totally different style of journey and it becomes textual rather than just a thing you notice over time. And I think that that's cool. And I think that there's, it's hard to argue in my opinion that there is a more natural way to show that Mm. in, in film. And I think that that's special and cool. And this is my plea for our audience to make more found footage things that are genuinely innovative and taking risks and like accepting and excited about the different challenges you have in making a story like that work in the future. Something I've seen kind of popping up a lot lately, and I think it's a big part of the podcast, like narrative podcast Mm -hmm. sort of transition to tv series like a lot of Mm -hmm. them are doing this pipeline yeah where you're getting kind of a you get the best of both worlds where you're following a character who has discovered tapes and so often it's like audio tapes when we're talking about podcasts but then when they brand to tv it's videotapes sure and some of them i've i've seen have done it really well where you kind of like play with the aspect ratio where it's like you get the cinematic world of the person we're following but then you get like something grainy in film or vhsc in the in the tapes that they've found and they're watching sure. and that sometimes it's like sometimes again it's lazy but sometimes it's really fun to kind of mm-hmm. see how the two are different and and how you can kind of have the best of both and tell like you don't have to go all in on found footage but you can pick and choose the moments that you're going to reveal information through that but then still have your more traditional film playing out through your protagonist and what a cool opportunity to showcase a relationship between two people where only one of them is aware of it and only from like a very detached state like think of what 
you can do with that? And then what if they never find the person? What if they know the person, but the person doesn't know they found the footage? What if they do eventually meet and like that comes out? Like there are so many complex human relationship things that you can explore with that. That is, it's so cool. And you can't do that otherwise. So like, hey, take advantage of this cool opportunity. Totally. This has definitely made me want to. I know it's, it's made me be like oh maybe I should I maybe I should develop brains as a as a full-length pilot and then just use like parts of it as found footage because that was always the thing is people were always like are you gonna make brains into anything else and I was like no it's always a web series hmm. and I've tried to do it before but like to your point earlier like it doesn't make sense for the entire full like a, a like a pilot version like half an mm-hmm. hour or hour-long pilot version to be exclusively found footage because I just even in my wildest dreams, can't imagine that being a really good, like, medium for television or for that Mm -hmm. story in television. But, like, now that you've been talking about all these different ways you've seen people kind of have it both ways, I'm considering, Mm -hmm. ooh, that's interesting. Maybe I should lean into that and and not be so, like, hyper-focused on the found footage aspect and instead give myself a little flexibility. Hmm. Yeah. I've gone in like the opposite direction where I'm just like, I need to write something that is all found footage and all <laughs> a single shot where there's just never a cut, <laughs> but it also is really cinematic. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that's the best case scenario for episodes of our podcast where like we both just get excited about making something again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love this. This is awesome. This is why we yeah. started this podcast is to talk yeah. and to get excited about making stuff. Absolutely. Well, thanks for listening. I hope that you've been inspired too. Yeah. Tweet us or Instagram us your favorite like found footage projects or whether you've made them or not. I I, I definitely want to to beef up my viewership of not just low budget web series, but uh, all the other cool things in the world. So yeah, let us know. Uh, And let us know if you are either a found footage filmmaker or someone who is now found footage curious. Uh, If if this has inspired you, we also definitely want to hear that. Thanks so much to Kelsey Rauber for our theme music, Kaylee Brown for our podcast art, Ezra Lee for editing this episode, and to all of you for listening. Links to learn more about them are in our episode description. And thank you to our booby VIPs, who are our $10 supporters on Patreon, including Kim Garland, Amanda Blunt, Anthony Epp, Kelsey Rauber, Norman Steinberg, Jerry Maravia, and Brandy Nicole Payne. If you want your name on that list and or to have access to our bonus resources related to each and every episode, you can subscribe for as little as $3 to our Patreon at patreon.com slash breakingoutpod. Or join our free newsletter where we share a new creative prompt each month. Next episode, we'll be discussing inclusive screenwriting for film and television with special guest Jess King. Be sure to tune in. 